0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As the wise man George Carlin once said, we like war. We're a warlike people. And mankind has gone to war for all kinds of reasons, from land to power, resources, a pretty face, A pig? Honestly, it seems like we'll go to war over just about anything. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts.
1: Get ready to geek out! The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today, wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I will say, before we dive into today's topic... That some of these might be classified as riots rather than full scale official military engagements, but they're definitely interesting nonetheless. Such as the time when the only shot fired was taken by the weaker side in the engagement, and that shot hit a soup kettle. The Kettle War was a military conflict between the Northern Netherlands, also called the Republic of the Seven Netherlands and the Austrian Netherlands, backed by Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II. Belgium was at the time controlled by Austria. After the Dutch Revolt from 1566 to 1646, Northern Netherlands, or the Republic of the Seven Netherlands, became independent from Spanish and Holy Roman Empire rule. In 1585, the Northern Netherlands was closed off by a 350-kilometer-long Scheldt River, flows from northwestern Netherlands, western Belgium, and northern France. The intention was to cut off the Belgian trading harbors of Ghent and Antwerp. Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II demanded the reopening of the Scheldt River and sent three warships, including the new merchant flagship Le Louis, with the Emperor's flag from Antwerp. Joseph II didn't expect the Dutch to react. The Admiralty of Zeeland, The westernmost province of northern Netherlands sent out the Dutch ship, the Dolphin. The Dolphin fired only one shot that hit no people, but supposedly knocked over a soup kettle on the deck of Le Louis. Le Louis surrendered. Joseph II declared war on October 30, 1784, but nothing significant came of it. In 1785, a treaty was signed between the two nations, and the Scheldt River remained closed. On April 15, 1856, a steamboat arrived at a small, four-and-a-half-square-mile island off the coast of Panama. One of the ship's passengers, likely drunk, got into a dispute with a local vendor. Before the issue was resolved, 17 people were dead and 29 wounded. What were they fighting over? a slice of watermelon, valued at five cents. In 1846, the United States had entered into a treaty with a country then known as New Grenada, which is mostly comprised of what is now Panama and Colombia. Under the agreement, the United States established a military presence in modern-day Panama, one which engendered mistrust toward U.S. soldiers among many Panamanians. So when a steamship full of Americans landed on Tobago Island, Just outside of Panama City, which at the time did not have a wharf at which ships could dock, tensions were already running extremely high. On that April day in 1856, the John L. Stevens arrived on Tobago Island to pick up roughly 1,000 passengers. The ferries to and from mainland Panama only ran during high tide, but the tide was out, so it was delayed a few hours. The passengers waiting in Panama City had been drinking and weren't well-liked by the locals in the first place. According to most accounts, one of the passengers, a man named Jack Oliver, spotted a vendor named José Manuel Luna selling watermelon slices for five cents each. Oliver took a slice but refused to pay. Luna yelled at him and pulled out a knife. Oliver responded by pulling out a gun. Another Panamanian came to Luna's defense and tackled Oliver. Oliver. In the struggle, the gun went off and someone was hit. It took only minutes for a full-scale riot to break out, and Marines had to be brought in to restore order. By the end of the mayhem now referred to as the Watermelon War, 15 Americans and two Panamanians had died. As a result, the United States demanded and received a number of military concessions from New Grenada, including the right to establish military bases on islands in the Bay of Panama and take control of the Panamanian Railroad. The now-entrenched American presence in the area likely led to decades of U.S. troops and businesses in the area, and ultimately to the creation of the Panama Canal. The canal and the last U.S. military base in the area wouldn't be turned over to Panamanian control until December 31st of 1999. In a way, all war is stupid, but high in the running for most stupid is the Battle of Sapolino, also known as the War of the Oaken Bucket, fought in 1325 between the rival city-states of Bologna and Modena in Italy. It started when a group of Modenese soldiers snuck into Bologna and stole an oak bucket from a well in the center of the city. While the bucket itself had no special importance, the affront hurt Bologna's pride, and the humiliated Bolognese demanded the bucket be returned. The Modenese refused, and war was declared upon them. Bologna mustered a huge army of thirty thousand foot soldiers and two thousand cavaliers, and marched toward the battlefield located near what is now the commune of Zappolina. Facing them was an army of only five thousand Modenese soldiers and two thousand cavaliers awkwardly scattered across the plains while their enemies held the high ground in the surrounding hills. Some 2,000 men would lose their lives in the fracas. Despite being surrounded and outnumbered 5 to 1, though, Medina's army fought bravely, and in just a few hours, the battle was over, with the Bolognese retreating and the Modanese chasing after them. The Modanese army not only chased the humiliated Bolognese all the way back home, they actually managed to break through the city gates and destroyed several castles and a sluice lock on the Reno River, thus depriving the city of water. At this point, Medina's army was in position to siege the city, but they chose not to. And as a final parting gesture, the men stole a second bucket, this one from a well outside the city gates. Following the war, the two parties agreed to peace and Medina returned some properties it had captured from Bologna as a gesture of goodwill. But the original bucket? That was never returned. To this day, the city of Medina keeps it in the basement of the Torre della Ghirlandina, and a replica is available for viewing in the town hall. Even though wars are usually given literal names, when you hear the phrase, the pig war, you'd be forgiven for wondering if it's a metaphor. The story begins back in 1846, when the Oregon Treaty was signed between the U.S. and Britain to put a rest to a long-standing border dispute between the United States and British North America, later to be made Canada, over the land between the Rocky Mountains and the Pacific coastline. The Oregon Treaty stated that the U.S. and British American border would be drawn along the 49th parallel, a division that remains to this day. Although this sounds pretty straightforward, the situation became more complicated when it came to a set of islands situated to the southwest of Vancouver, where the treaty stated that the border was to be through the middle of the channel separating the continent from Vancouver's island. The position of these small islands made that difficult to do with certainty. One of the largest and most important islands in this area, San Juan Island, was of notable significance due to its strategic position at the mouth of the channel. As such, both the U.S. and U.K. claimed sovereignty of the island, and citizens from both countries began to settle there. In 1859, the British had a significant presence on the island, bolstered with the recent arrival of the Hudson Bay Company, who had set up a salmon-curing station and a sheep ranch on the island. Meanwhile, a contingent of 20 to 30 U.S. settlers had also recently arrived and made it their home. Judging by reports of the time, The islanders themselves got along okay. However, in June of 1859, a pig wandered onto the land of Lyman Cutler, an American farmer. When Cutler noticed the pig eating some of his potatoes, he became angry and shot it. The pig was actually owned by a British employee of the Hudson's Bay Company named Charles Griffin. Griffin owned quite a few pigs and was well known for letting them roam freely across the island, This was probably not the first time one of them had trotted across Cutler's land. When Griffin found out about the death of his pig, he went to confront Cutler. Cutler offered to pay Griffin $10 in compensation, but Griffin instead reported Cutler to the local British authorities, who threatened to arrest him, much to the anger of the local American citizens, who drew up a petition requesting military protection. General William S. Harney, the commander of the Department of Oregon, with known anti-British views, sent a 66-man company of the U.S. 9th Infantry to San Juan. Upon hearing this news, James Douglas, the governor of British Columbia, decided to send three British warships as a show of force. During the following month, there was a standoff, with both sides slowly increasing their military presence in the area, and with the U.S. 9th Infantry refusing to budge, even though they were massively outnumbered. It was not until the arrival of Admiral Robert L. Baines, Commander-in-Chief of the British Navy in the Pacific, that things started to change. When he finally arrived, Douglas ordered Baines to land his troops on San Juan and engage the U.S. 9th Infantry. Baines refused, famously stating he would not, quote, "...involve two great nations in a war over a squabble about a pig." By this time, word had finally reached both Washington and London about what was going on. Officials on both sides of the Atlantic were shocked that a dispute over livestock had grown into a military standoff involving three warships, 84 guns, and 2,600 men. Concerned that this was going to escalate further, both sides quickly began negotiations, eventually deciding that both the U.S. and Britain should maintain a presence of no more than 100 men each on the island until a formal agreement could be met. The British subsequently set up camp on the north of the island, with the Americans being based on the south of the island. It was not until 1872 that an international commission, led by Kaiser Wilhelm I of Germany, decided that the island should fall entirely under American control, and such the dispute was finally laid to rest. Today, you can visit both the British and American camps, as they are part of the San Juan Island National Historic Park. Interestingly, this is the only place in a U.S. national park where a foreign flag is regularly hoisted over U.S. soil, and both the flag and the flagpole were provided by the British government as a sign of friendship. I love a dog as much as the next man, though maybe not as much as the Greek man who accidentally started a war when his dog got away from him. Bulgaria and Greece had both had their sights set on similar territories freed by the fall of the Ottoman Empire. The result was a number of border skirmishes between the two sides, leading to the Second Balkan War of 1913. Then World War I broke out. Bulgaria sided with Germany, Austria, and Hungary, and when the war was over, they were forced to give up Western Thrace, which had given them direct access to the Aegean Sea, as well as to give up land to the Kingdom of Serbia, Croats, and Slovenes, which later became Yugoslavia. As a result, tension between Greece and Bulgaria didn't improve with the end of World War I. The more hot-headed on the Bulgarian side did not recognize the terms of the treaty that rewarded Greece for siding with the winning team, nor did they acknowledge that their conflict had to end. Raids were launched into Greece and Yugoslavia, the most devastating of which was made by the Internal Macedonian Revolutionary Organization. Petrich, a town in southwestern Bulgaria bordering Greece, was run by the IMRO as a virtually independent state. In 1923, the Bulgarian Prime Minister tried to mitigate tensions with Greece and improve relations with the rest of the continent for this outrage he was ousted by a coup then captured by the imro and killed now for the dog there was a greek soldier stationed at the greco-bulgarian border on the kimur kapu pass who had a dog on the 18th of october 1925 for reasons that have been lost to time that dog began running toward the bulgarian side despite the frequent skirmishes that had left hundreds dead on both sides the soldier ran after his dog, straight into Bulgarian territory, where he was promptly shot dead by border guards. The Greek border guards fired volleys into the Bulgarian side, and the Bulgarians further retaliated. During a lull, a Greek captain and his aide grabbed a white sheet and ran out into no-man's land to appeal for calm. The opportunity was too good to resist— The Bulgarians fired, killing the captain and wounding the aide, who was able to make it back to the Greek side. As for the dog, its fate remains unknown. The official version that made it to Greek newspapers at the time omitted the dog entirely. According to the press, some Bulgarian border guards stormed the Greek outpost at Belisitsa for no reason, and it was during this raid that the Greek captain and one guard were killed. Bulgaria and Greece were now on the brink of war. Bulgaria expressed regret for the incident and said it was all a terrible misunderstanding. They proposed a Greco-Bulgarian commission to investigate the matter. It could have ended there were it not for Lieutenant General Theodorus Pangalos. Pangalos had deposed King Constantine I of Greece, established the Second Hellenic Republic, and led the coup which installed him as the country's prime minister, and later its president. In that latter position, he suspended freedom of the press, devalued Greek currency by cutting paper notes in half, and even dictated how long women's skirts should be, no higher than one foot or 30 centimeters off the ground, or else. Pangalos gave the Bulgarians an ultimatum, punish those responsible, make an official apology, and pay 2 million French francs in compensation to the victims' families within the next 48 hours. Bulgaria refused, so Pangalos ordered his troops into Bulgaria, where they occupied the town of Petrich and nearby villages. The Bulgarians fought back, but the Greeks maintained their grip over the town and the region. Desperate, Bulgaria appealed to the League of Nations, the precursor of the United Nations. The League ordered a ceasefire, demanded that Greece withdraws immediately, and that they compensate Bulgaria for their invasion. Greece accused the League of hypocrisy, citing the Corfu incident of 1923, wherein Italy attacked the Greek island of Corfu, and the League sided with the attackers. Pangalos argued that the League had two sets of rules, one for powerful nations like Italy, and another for weaker ones like Greece. Nevertheless, he had no choice. The League sent in military attachés from France, Italy, and Britain to oversee the Greek withdrawal. Around 50 Bulgarians had died during the brief occupation, so Greece was ordered to pay 45,000 pounds in compensation. As for Pangalos, Greece had been humiliated under his rule, so the military staged another coup and replaced him with the president he had originally deposed. So, keep your dogs on a tight leash, or you might get killed, start a war, and bring about multiple military coups. I think that's the main takeaway from this. A fair chunk of the history of the British Empire rests on one man, or on a chunk of that man. Robert Jenkins was a British Navy captain whose ship was boarded by Spaniards in 1731, and they, for reasons best known only to them, felt it appropriate to slice off one of the captain's ears. Relations between Britain and Spain hadn't been great at the time, though war had been more or less avoided by the efforts of British Prime Minister Sir Thomas Walpole. By 1739, Britain apparently got tired of not shooting the Spanish, and so, to provide a reason to go to war, a parliamentary hearing, no pun intended, was called over Jenkins' ear removal eight years earlier and he got to parade his shriveled, severed ear around the Parliament building. Everyone declared this a huge insult to the nation, and thus war must begin forthwith. The war continued a bit half-heartedly over the next few years, with the two nations slapping at one another in the Caribbean and off the South American coast. However, because Europe was a mesh of alliances and political intrigue, the War of Jenkins' Ear erupted into the War of Austrian Succession, which became one of those continent-encompassing affairs that Europe loves to do every now and again. The War of Austrian Succession was an eight-year conglomeration of related wars, two of which kicked off after the death of Charles VI, Holy Roman Emperor and head of the Austrian branch of the House of Habsburg in 1740. You might remember hearing about another Habsburg, Charles II, who was so inbred he could have been a sandwich, in our episode, It's Good to Be the King. An estimated half a million people died in that war. That war then formed a major cause of the Seven Years' War, the first truly global conflict, in which another one and a quarter million people died, and Britain eventually emerged as the dominant world power. So the short version, Man Loses Ear, Britain colonizes half the globe. Through it all, though, the Spanish claimed a diplomatic victory, again, for reasons only they know.
1: A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed,
0: how about some increasingly good reasons to support our Patreon page? You're thinking, okay, she's just going to plug the page, I'll jump 30. But wait, there's more. I don't want you to join the Patreon right now. In two weeks' time, I'm going to be launching a special offer with brand new perks and increased incentives for people who either support the show for the first time on Patreon or existing patrons who increase the amount of their donation. Be sure to follow us on our social media, Facebook or Instagram.com slash your brain on facts or twitter.com slash brain on Pod over the next few weeks to get all the details. You can check out the current Patreon levels at patreon.com/slash your Facts. There are a lot of strange reasons on today's list but the so-called pastry war between France and Mexico takes the cake, as it were. In the years following Mexico's 1821 independence from Spain, fighting in the streets between government forces and rebels plagued the country. Rioting, looting, and property damage were common, including the ransacking of a bakery near Mexico City, which was owned by French-born pastry chef Remontel. Frustrated when the Mexican government refused to compensate him for the damage, which had been caused by Mexican officers looting, Remontel took his case to his native country and French king Louis-Philippe. The French government was already angered over unpaid Mexican debts, which had been incurred during the Texas Revolution of 1836, and it demanded compensation of 600,000 pesos, which included an astronomical 60,000 pesos for Remontel's shop, more than 60 times what the shop was worth. When the Mexican Congress rejected the ultimatum, the French Navy in the spring of 1838 began a blockade of key seaports along the Gulf of Mexico from the Yucatan Peninsula to the Rio Grande. The United States, which had a contentious relationship with Mexico, sent a schooner to assist the blockade. The stalemate dragged on nearly until winter, when French warships bombarded the island fortress of San Juan de Ulua that guarded the preeminent port city of Veracruz. Mexico declared war on France, and its president ordered the conscription of all men who could bear arms. Within days, French marines raided the city and captured nearly the entire Mexican navy. Desperate to repel the invaders, Mexico turned to grizzled warrior Antonio López de Santa Ana, the former president and military general who had only the year prior returned home in disgrace after his humiliating defeat in the 1836 Battle of San Jacinto, which led to the creation of the Independent Republic of Texas. Rustled from his forced retirement, the general, who had proved so ruthless at the Battle of the Alamo, left his Veracruz hacienda and organized a makeshift army that drove the French forces from the city back to their ships. As Santa Ana galloped after the invaders, however, grape shot fired from a cannon, took out the horse from under him and severely wounded one of his legs. Doctors determined the limb could not be saved and were forced to amputate the leg. Less than four months later, the pastry war was over. British diplomats brokered a peace agreement in which Mexico would pay France 600,000 pesos, including the cost of Remontel's pastry shop. French forces withdrew from the country in March of 1839, although they would return to fight a protracted war against Mexico in the 1860s. Here's a pro tip. If you go to someone's house and they have a piece of golden furniture, don't sit on it unless they ask you to. It's probably very important. If you listen to our episode, Good Morning to You, which is one of my personal favorites, You heard about the sacred stools of the Ashanti of Ghana, which are the seat of power for their chief, literally, but also hold the souls of the dead. In 1896, the Ashanti king had been exiled, replaced by the British governor of the Gold Coast, Sir Frederick Hodgson. A few years later, Hodgson entered the Ashanti capital and said that since the Ashanti lands were under the rule of the queen, they had better fetch him that sacred golden stool for him to sit on. The locals presumably sat in stunned silence, then went home and gathered up as many weapons as they could find. The British sent some men out to look for the stool and were surprised to find themselves under a vicious attack by a force led by Ya Asantewa, the mother of the exiled king. The British column was nearly annihilated. The survivors barely managed to her back to their small fort and barricade themselves inside. Yaas and Tiwa laid siege to them with a force of up to 12,000 men. The British had to bring in several thousand additional soldiers under the command of Major James Wilcox, as well as serious ordnance to break through their lines. They finally did, after over three months. In retaliation for Ashanti's impertinence, Wilcox spent the remainder of the summer butchering local villages, raising towns, and stealing their land. Though the Ashanti lost on the battlefield, suffering over 2,000 military casualties and many more civilians, and were annexed and brutally repressed by the British, they still claim to have won the war. Why? Because through it all, The British never got to sit on the golden stool. You know, Moxie, you might be saying, all of these are really old. People don't still go to war at a moment's notice over stupid little things. Au contraire. I present you with the football war of 1970. Long-simmering tensions between Honduras and El Salvador, which were competing for a slot in the 1970 World Cup to be held in Mexico, erupted into open hostilities called la guerra del fútbol. There was fighting between fans at the first game in the Honduran capital of Ligusicalpa, where Honduras won 1-0. The second game in the Salvadoran capital of San Salvador was won by El Salvador 3-0, and even more violence followed. A playoff match took place in Mexico City a few weeks later, which El Salvador won 3-2 in overtime. That same day, El Salvador dissolved all diplomatic ties with Honduras, stating that the government of Honduras had not taken any effective measures to punish these crimes, nor had it given assurances of indemnification or reparations for the damages to Salvadorans. The Salvadoran Air Force then attacked targets inside Honduras, which caught the better-equipped Honduran Air Force off-guard and the larger Salvadoran army then invaded Honduras. The Organization of American States called for a ceasefire. After four days of fighting, the Hundred Hours War had ended in over 2,000 casualties on each side, with some 300,000 Salvadorans displaced. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I will leave you with not the strangest cause of war but a surprising cause for a truce. It's one of those stories where if you saw it in a movie, you'd complain that it was unrealistic. In the winter of 1916-17, half-starved Russian wolves converged on both the German and Russian lines in the northern part of the front. As desperation pushed them beyond their fear of humans, the wolves began attacking soldiers not just one at a time, but even soldiers in groups the soldiers tried poisoning them, shooting them with rifles and machine guns, even lobbing grenades at them. The situation was so severe that the Russian and German soldiers convinced their commanders to allow temporary truce negotiations to enable them to deal with the animals more efficiently. Finally, a coordinated effort was made, and gradually the wolf packs were rounded up, leaving the area once again safe for humans to kill one another. Thanks for spending part of your day with me.